Uh, let's go ahead and uh, pick up here where we left off. We had finished up uh, finished up just a few minutes before our time was up, the uh, Doctrine of the Universal Church, and just had a few minutes to briefly introduce this idea of the local church. And we really introduced it by uh, pointing out that uh, there's a lot of differences in the way folks do church, and uh, not, not only across denominational lines and such in contemporary life, but also uh, we, we do things much differently than the historical church has done them. And uh, some of these that uh, have I have listed here that become particularly important when we talk about church polity and, and Baptist life um, are, are, are bullet pointed here. Democratization of church polity and the rise of the ruling deacon. Yeah, so the question of who runs the church? Uh, there has been a tendency because of, because of American dem- democracy uh, to move from pastoral leadership of a, of a congregational church to a congregationally ruled church uh, where the pastor has very little say. Uh, or, uh, in some cases, the ruling deacon. This has come, become quite common it's it's i i say it's a it's a common thing it's it's not a it's not an official thing in most places but uh, at the same time we we recognize that uh, oftentimes the deacon uh rises to a place of rulership in the church there there board run churches uh there are uh, and uh, trustee run churches that uh, are are in such in such a sense that uh, uh that the it's not congregationally or pastorally run, but actually deacon rule. The near elimination of church discipline. We're going to talk about church discipline, some of the ins and outs of it, and uh, uh, point to some studies that show that during the 19th century in Southern Baptist life, um, on average, 4% of congregations were disciplined annually. 4% of congregations were disciplined annually. Um, and uh, it was it was a a routine thing that was used uh, to affect order, uh, to uh, to to bring people back to places of of submission and repentance and such. And it's it's one of those things that, particularly in the 20th century, you know, church discipline just never happened. Or if it did, it was only for some heinous crime uh, that was committed. Um, and so we've become accustomed to thinking that uh, uh, church discipline is is almost a bad thing. I say a curbing of entry standards for new and transferring members. I'm going to see in church polity, there was a, used to be a very extensive use of letters, uh, both of recommendation for membership, but also people would carry letters with them in order to participate in communion in other churches. Uh, a lot more communication between churches. We, we talk about independent Baptist churches, but uh, for the most part in history, Baptists weren't as independent as they tend to be in modern life. An astonishing decrease in baptismal ages. Up until the last 100 years or so, uh, the average age for folks getting baptized was uh, in the upper teens, 16, 17 years old. Uh, The idea of children being baptized into church membership was really unknown. Uh, so we want to talk about some of the ins and outs, whether that's a good thing, bad thing, 
uh, and, uh, and, and talk about those things. The reduction of the Lord's table to an exclusively individual right. Um, this is, this is again, some, a, a new development in the life of the church, at least in Baptist life. Uh, typically, the uh, uh, Lord's Table was a celebration of the community and its fellowship with each other, um, and not so much the communion that the individual has with Christ. Okay, And we're going to say there's a vertical dimension and there's a horizontal dimension associated uh, with communion, uh, but uh, there has been a reduction of that uh, of the idea of the Lord's Table to, you know, I'm right with Jesus rather than I'm right with the body. Introduction of the altar call, something that's very un, uh, was unknown uh, prior to the mid-19th century. Ambivalence towards biblically regulated worship. Okay, uh, How is it that we run the church? Well, the word liturgy almost scarcely uh, escapes anyone's lips in a Baptist church these days, right? You know, liturgy, that you, you think, oh, that's... That's like Anglicans or maybe Roman Catholics, but we don't have a liturgy. Well, you do. Might not call it that, and it might not be uh, particularly rigid, uh, but everybody's got a, a liturgy. Um, and uh, and if we don't know what we're doing, uh, sometimes we can omit things or add things that shouldn't be added or omitted. Uh, decline of the sermon. And doctrinal confession, I think particularly doctor, doctrinal confession is, is on this list here. Uh, in many cases, in many churches, the sermon is still quite robust, but uh, doctrinal confession, you know, the recitation of creeds or the use of catechisms, again, is something that's scarcely known in Western Baptist life. Uh, occasionally you'll find somebody that does that, but you sort of think of them as sort of out there. Uh, they're strange. They're different. Nobody, nobody does that kind of a thing. And we're going to see if there's some value in that. Um, changes in individual churches, relationships to associations, conventions, and such. That's always been in something of a state of flux. But uh, uh, it's I, f- I find it very interesting to to seat ourselves within a a, a history, a network, a storyline of of these things because we tend to. I think all of us tend to think that the way we do it. At church today is the way it's always been done, and we measure everything else based on the way we do it because that's what we sort of assume has always been, and that's that's not always the case. So historical theology is going to uh, play a role here, not just not just the scriptures. Now, historical theology is not the final court of appeal in ecclesiology any more than it is in any other doctrine. Uh, in fact, you know, for uh, for Baptist distinctives, uh, the, the very first one is usually biblical authority. The B for Baptist is usually biblical authority. So the question that we have to ask as we go through all of these points of discussion here is not whether this has traditionally been done this way or whether we do it that way or whether it's an okay to do this novel thing, but whether the Bible actually says we can do it or should do it or must do it this way. And so we, we're going to talk a little bit about a binding regulative principle uh, that comes to us from the Christian scriptures. Okay, so with that in view, let's see if we can't define the church uh, and discover some of the purposes and functions that it has. So 
definition. I'm going to use here Edward Hiscox's definition that's been around for a long time. Uh, but I don't know that it's really been pr- improved upon. It's long, uh, but it really lends itself well to an outline. And so I tend to use that here. So Edward Hiscox uh, defines the local church as a company of regenerate persons, baptized on a profession of faith in Christ, united in covenant for worship, instruction, the observance of Christian ordinances, and for such service as the gospel requires, recognizing and accepting Christ as their supreme Lord and lawgiver, taking his word as their only and sufficient rule of faith and practice in all matters of conscience and religion. So let's look at this definition and see if we can't break this down into an outline. I might actually squeeze a few extra things in there along the way. First, uh, in his definition, is they have to be regenerate persons. That is, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have been committed, who have committed their lives to Christ because God has regenerated, given them new life. And we see this uh, routinely stated in the scripture. Those who received his word were added to the church. And so this is, this is the, the, the pattern that we find routinely in the, in the New Testament, that in order to be added to this body, first thing you had to do is receive the word, accept or welcome the word. That is, believe the gospel. Uh, Acts 2.47, a few verses later, and uh, we see the church mushrooming early on here. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay. And then the, the introductions to almost all of the books indicate that the churches were filled with saints, that is, regenerate people. Uh, so I've got 1 Corinthians 1 spelled out here, but just about all of the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Pauline epistles start this way, or something like it, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. That is, those who have been sanctified in Jesus Christ, who are saints by calling, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he defines who the church of God is uh, with that definition. So uh, we find that the first thing uh, on the list here is a regenerate membership. Uh, oftentimes in the, in the list of Baptist distinctives, this would be the first S, right? A saved church membership. There's no R in Baptist, so we can't say regenerate. But the same, same idea, right? So uh, those who are regenerate, which is, of course... Something that in some sense distinguishes us from other denominations, right? Uh, you can be a part of, you can be a baptized member even of some churches without being a believer. In fact, you can be baptized before you're, you even call upon the name of the Lord, even before you're capable of calling upon the name of the Lord. And you are in some sense a part then of that church. Now, so oftentimes you're not a full member. Uh, nonetheless, you're, you're con- considered part of that covenant community. And that's a distinction here uh, that Baptists have. Only regenerate persons uh, can, be, uh, can make up this church. Secondly, we find here that these regenerate persons are brought into the church by means of water baptism. Uh, we'll talk about the details of baptism. For now, I'm going to just use the term uh, that probably ought to be in all of our uh, all of our translations is immersion they've been immersed publicly upon profession of faith in Christ and as we're going to see as we talk about baptism at some length 
uh, further down in the notes, that baptism is the entry right. Um, again, uh, we we tend to think of the communion uh, of the ordinances, baptism and communion, as individual rights. You know, a baptism is I want to be with Jesus, and and uh, communion I want to make things right with Jesus. Okay, and that that element is there, but probably the more dominant element in Scripture for both of those ordinances is the communal it's the communal aspect you are baptized into one body okay so it's an entry right you are brought into membership in the church through baptism okay and uh, then you you persist in communion with that body we rightly regard the lord's body we persist in our community uh through this this rite of the Lord's Supper, or sometimes we call it communion for that reason. And we find here that in order to be part of the church in the uh, in the New Testament church, one had to be baptized. Those who were those who received his word and will continue were baptized and then were added. So uh so in order to be added, you needed not only to call upon the name of the Lord, but to be baptized publicly. Uh, as really a request to the church for inclusion. Matthew 28 also appears in the progression. Uh, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, disciple them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded to you. Okay, And uh, that, that, baptiz- that pot- baptized word I think really should pop to us so it's not just a matter of introducing people to the gospel, but actually baptizing them into communities where edification, teaching, and fellowship can take place. Okay, The commission is not just a matter of sharing the gospel. The Great Commission is sharing the gospel, planting churches where people can grow to spiritual maturity. That's, that's the Great Commission. Okay. Thirdly, say we say here, uh, they confess a fixed and common corpus of biblical doctrine. It says here in Acts 2.42 that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're going to spend some time looking at uh, the idea of creeds and confessions. And we have a pattern very early on in the scriptures. Uh, some, uh, By some counts, there are as many as 13 separate creeds that appear in the pages of Scripture. And uh, these were very important to the early church and, and had the role of binding the the congregations together uh, around a tradition, okay? Uh, don't think of tradition as a bad word. Uh, most of the time in the New Testament, tradition is a very good word. It's an apostolic tradition. It's a body of doctrine that is held by all members of that church, which is why when you... A joined Community Bible Church, uh, there was a doctrinal statement that you had to affirm. Say, yeah, I agree with this. Or at the very minimum, you had to say, I I don't understand it, but I have no reason to think I disagree with it at this point. You know, and, and so uh, you, you had to affirm that you believe the same thing that everybody else does within the life of the church. And and uh, those those creeds and confessions really should be uh, succinct summaries of the essentials of the Christian faith. Okay. 
We also share a common purpose. So not only do we have a, a common uh, uh, body of doctrine, but also a common purpose, a function. What are we doing here? And we're going to talk about this. We may even get to it tonight here, talking about the regulative principle. What is it that the Bible tells us that we must do when we come together? And we should all agree that that's what we do. And when we come together, we should do those things. Okay. And so the, the Bible gives us some very important guidance. So some a listing here, we'll, we'll go through this. Corporate prayer, corporate scripture reading, confession, instruction, singing, fellowship, and then mutually dispersing, carry out the Great Commission. We observe two ordinances. So they were, those who received his word were baptized. Uh, they uh, were added to the church and they were constantly devoted to the apostles' doctrine and to the breaking of bread. Okay. That was, it's not just eating together, but rather this is the ordinance of the Lord's table. So they were committed to the ordinances of the church, first baptism and then the Lord's table. They possess independent corporate autonomy. Now, the argument here is largely one from silence. There's no biblical instruction per se uh, for a hierarchy of ecclesiastical authority. Even the apostles were part of local churches. Um, and the multiple one another passages in the epistles also suggest that the churches were equipped to govern their own affairs. We are to do these things with one another and for one another. Okay. Doesn't mean that individual churches sustain no relationship with other churches or can't receive counsel from other churches, can't partner with other churches for the sake of the gospel and such, share resources, but no church can yield its authority beyond Christ and the scriptures alone and that local body in the carrying out of its ecclesiastical functions. And uh, uh, since we, we find that we are supposed to do these things with one another and for one another and to one another, uh, the assumption here is uh, that there is autonomy in each local body. Okay. And it's largely a, a, an argument from silence. There is no record of any sort of external authorities uh, being being exercised in local churches. We own the Bible as our only and sufficient rule of faith and practice. Now, just because we have confessions does not mean that the confessions take the place of the Bible. Rather, the confessions are a summary of biblical doctrine, we have the uh, the whole Bible then telling us what we ought to do and believe and act. And so we find here that his divine power has given us everything necessary for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his glory and excellence. And then continues on to speak about the scriptures, uh, giving, us, giving us everything we need. Okay. I've added a couple of elements, too, that I think are probably important to the life of the church. I'm borrowing these from Dr. McCune. Um, but uh, but uh, the church, a church ought to be organized with biblical officers. We're going to we're going to go through these uh, 
two offices and the qualifications for participation in these these offices. But a church, in order to be a a church in order, has to have uh, these these uh, these officers in order uh, to function. So the question is, you know, if a church doesn't, you know, and and perhaps we could ask this question of all of these points so far. If a church doesn't have one of these things, does that mean it's not a church? Because we've defined a church in this way. I mean, is it, is it, are we going to say that a Presbyterian church, for instance, who baptizes infants into the community, is that not a church for that reason? Or if they, you know, if they have a hierarchy, is it not a church? If, if they don't have a pastor, even temporarily, does that mean they're not a church? And uh, the answer here, I think we should say, is that their churches out of order doesn't mean they're not churches, but they're uh, but they're churches that are functioning in a way other than what the scripture would ex- expect. So it does seem that in the in order for a church to be in order, it has to have at least one pastor. There's no example in scripture of a church lacking a pastor. Again, doesn't mean that the church ceases to exist if a pastor leaves, uh, but such a church is temporarily, at least, out of order. In view of Acts 6, uh, there's a question as to whether deacons are necessary in order to be a church, because what we find here is that the apostles were running the church uh, pretty much by themselves until the task became over, so overwhelming that they did not have enough time between them to get dedicate to all of the tasks of the church, and especially at this point, that the, the care for widows within the life of the church. And so in order that they might give adequate time to the ministry of the word and to prayer, uh, they appointed deacons, or perhaps I should say they oversaw the appointment of deacons. Uh, in order to carry out these, these other tasks. Um, so some, some would look at that and say, aha, you don't actually have to have deacons in order to be a church. Uh, in fact, perhaps the pattern should be that you just have a pastor at first until he gets too busy and then deacons come. Um, and that's, that's possible. Some have concluded that way. It's perhaps better to think in terms of, uh, every, church, I think, could profit uh, from the existence of deacons. It's hard to imagine a pastor not wanting help. Um, almost have to be full of himself uh, to not want any help at all in, in the operations of the church. I think er- any church is is bettered by the multiplication of, of leadership and the diffusion of authority uh, to some degree in the life of the church. And so it's Probable that we should look at the uh, at this as a as a development in church structure that once established was something that was to be normative in the life of the church. All churches organized from that point forward uh, probably were intended to have at least one deacon or more. Okay, any questions on on that point? And the last point here, I say they meet together at regular and stated times. And I think this is a particularly important thing to, you know, bring to our attention here because we are in a window 
uh, of time, have been for almost a year, where the whole church isn't gathering. And, and to that degree, the church is out of order. It's not a, it's not as though it has ceased to be a church, but we should long for it to be restored to a state of normalcy. Okay. We should long for it to be restored to a place where we can all gather mutually together in order to worship. Um, now because of circumstances, I, I understand, uh, that, you know, it, there's value in broadcasting sermons or bits and pieces of a, of a, of, of a church service, but we have to recognize and realize that's, that, that what's going on there is, is, is a far cry from what it means to do church. Doing church is fundamental. And in fact, that's, that, yeah, we, we said it first night that the idea of a church, probably the best translation we can come up with ecclesia is assembly or community. Those are probably the two central terms as to what a church is. It's a community. It's a, it's, a, it's an assembly. And a church that is not assembling or not gathering for community is always going to be deficient, uh, when compared to one that is gathering. And so, uh, I, I, I know many of you are going to church on Sunday. Some of you perhaps are not. And it's very important that we not be lulled into thinking that, you know, this, this online internet church, it's not half bad. You know, I, I don't have to get up quite so early. I don't have to uh, dress up, at least, you know, from, from my shoulders down. And so it, 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 you perhaps can see some convenience factors associated with uh, a meeting electronically, but that's not church uh, when that happens. And we recognize that this is a church, out, a church is out of order if it can't meet, and we should long for that to be uh, uh, to uh, put together. We find here, so for on the first day of the week, we gathered together to break bread. This just seems to be the pattern of the early church. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, each of you should put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So there should be a weekly collection taken. Uh, so And first day of the week sort of identifies here for us uh, when that normally is. Now we come together on Sundays, and one of the things we do is have collections so that when a need comes up, there doesn't have to be a frenzy uh, in order to, to meet the need. There ought to be some sort of laying aside of resources uh, so that the church can uh, can mobilize quickly. Uh, to meet the needs uh, of the church and uh, of its of, of its uh, of its ministries. Okay. Question here then: Is it mandatory to meet on Sunday? In Western culture, uh, Sunday sort of became part and parcel of the uh, of the uh, you know everybody had off Sunday because that was the day to do church, but. As our country and as the West has become increasingly secularized, uh, that's that the, the the sacredness, as it were, of Sunday has has gone by the wayside, and uh, there's been a a lot more of a question here as to whether it's appropriate to meet on other days. Uh, some do this as a matter of principle; they have you know four 
four services, for instance, two on Saturday, two on Sunday. Is that okay? Are we, are we, are we allowed to do that? Or must it be, uh, the, uh, the first day of the week? And, uh, what we have here is a question that we're going to ask later of, of other issues. Is this a, is this an element of worship or a circumstance of worship? We are to, we're to gather together regularly, clearly. The question is, is the first day of the week part of that element of worship? Uh, or is it just that you have to gather together regularly? Well, the question is not easily answered. Passages such as those listed above suggested that the normal practice of the early church was to meet regularly on Sundays. Uh, but just because it, we can see it happen that way does not necessarily mean it must happen that way. In fact, there's good evidence to suggest that the practice had become so widespread that Sunday became known as the Lord's Day uh, by the time the book of Revelation was written, right? Because John talks about being in the spirit on the Lord's Day. And apparently his his readers would have understood what that meant. And we assume uh, that that means on Sunday. That the day is part of the command, however, is not completely clear. It may simply reflect a first century circumstance of worship. Romans 14.5, in fact, tells us that the day was not mandatory. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Of course, there, the, uh, the contrast there is Sabbatarianism. Uh, but I think the principle persists. Uh, Paul is saying that there is no sacred day. You know, I, I talked about a sacred day, but that was tongue in cheek. There is no sacred day per se. But the idea of mandatory Sunday worship likely derives from an honest attempt to find application of the fourth commandment for our dispensation. So, you know, the Bible says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And there's this, this idea that, well, we have to keep all the Ten Commandments. And so therefore that one has to be obeyed as well. However, there was some sort of an adjustment in the early church away from the Jewish celebration of on Saturday and moved it to a Sunday celebration, uh, probably in commemoration of our Lord's resurrection. And this became the Christian Sabbath, okay? So the idea that Sunday became the day uh, probably derives from an attempt uh, to obey the Ten Commandments. But I say here, there may be some question as to the legitimacy of the reasoning here. Since the Mosaic Law has been set aside, it's not necessary to ascribe direct application of the law to the present day. Now, it's true that the other nine commandments have been reiterated in the New Testament. We obey them, not, however, because they're part of the law of Moses, but because they've been reiterated in the New Testament. This command is separate. This, is, this one's unique in that Paul twice says, is a day important? No, no day. You, you, some people regard days. Some people don't. Let every man be convinced in his own mind. Meh, what, whatever is is sort of his reply and so this is this is unique among the other the the the, the ten commandments the other nine 
are re- repeated and reiterated in the New Testament. This one's different. Okay. So the creation Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, the Christian Lord's Day are really not the same thing. And I had a little graph there for you to, to sort of illustrate this. The creation Sabbath, you know, some people would say, okay, the Sabbath has got to be observed in every age because this has happened the first week, right? The first, the creation week. But let's look and see if they're the same thing. The creation Sabbath was celebrated on the seventh day. It happened once. You know, the seventh day after the creation began, it's the only time. Its reason was really unstated, uh, but it's, but, uh, it says here, on that day God rested. And its purpose then was divine rest and reflection on what had just occurred. The Mosaic Sabbath is quite different. It's usually the seventh day, although there's several other Sabbaths that are scattered throughout the Jewish calendar that don't happen on a Sunday, uh, on a Saturday. It happens weekly, plus a few extras. The reason was the commemoration of the perfect rest enjoyed by God on his creation week and a forward look to a promised restoration of that rest. And its purpose was as, to serve as a sign of the covenant drawn between God and Israel. And this is, I think, a particularly important passage here because it details for us who it was for and why. It was for those who were rightly related to the Mosaic Covenant, okay, which has been set aside for our day. It's for Israel. The Christian Lord's Day is somewhat different from all of these, usually celebrated on the first day, although there's no mandate for that. Happens weekly. Why is it on Sunday? Well, we really don't know except from, from church history that probably the impetus here was a commemoration of the resurrection. It, it's, it, it's hard to know if there's anything else that could possibly rise to the level of that. And its purpose was corporate worship. It wasn't for rest wasn't for reflection per se. It was for corporate worship. So they're quite different in terms of their timing, their reasons, their purposes, and, and, and such. Okay. And so what should we do with this? Well, I, I don't think that uh, we should see in, in the Ten Commandments some sort of a principle of Sabbatarianism that has to be preserved. Some do see a one in seven rest principle, but that's more of a civil thing, you know, it, it may be that our bodies do need to rest one day out of seven, or we, we function more successfully if we do that. There does not seem to be a purpose that firmly ties together all of these expressions of days in the, uh, in the, in, in between the testaments. Okay. It's probable that the Sabbath has been set aside because Christ has actually instituted or at least begun the rest. We've entered into this rest uh, because of Christ. And so the symbol is no longer necessary because the reality has come. Now, having said this and sort of having deconstructed the requirement of Sunday worship, let me try and piece it back together again. Having said all this, we should note that while a specific day of worship is not required, in the New Testament. 
The Bible demands regular and frequent worship, regularly meeting together as a matter of some is, and that of necessity on days upon which the whole church can agree. Early Christian practice, as well as our own social structure, suggests that Sunday remains the most logical day for worship in American society. And I say it's especially imprudent, I think, to adjust the pattern of regular worship for trifling reasons so that I can have, you know, Sunday off. Okay. That seems to be a rather trifling reason, uh, to, to change that day. Um, although I would recognize, for instance, that, you know, we, we have missionaries and, uh, that are supported by our own church. One that, uh, meets on Saturday, Bangladesh. It's a, a predominantly Muslim culture. Um, and the churches meet on Friday because Friday is the cultural day off in Bangladesh. And so it's easier to meet on that day. And so that's what happens. Uh, I've been to Israel and uh, visited some churches there. And typically those churches uh, meet on Saturday because socially that's the day that's available. Uh, Sunday is the first day of work. It, that was one of the weird things about being in Israel. You go out on Sunday and it's, it's like Monday here. You know, all the cars are whizzing around. Everybody's getting to work because that's the first day of the work week. And so it is somewhat difficult to celebrate church on Sunday in Israel. So there's no mandate, uh, to, to meet on Sunday, but I, I can't think of very many good reasons in at least American culture to deviate from that practice that has been uh, the, this, the, the traditional practice of the church really from day one. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I just, I have a sort of a personal beef when I, I see churches that, and I guess I go all the way back to Saturday Night Live when early days, the church lady, she'd refer to, Oh, you're a Catholic. You can go whenever it's convenient. So yeah. It seems like we're seeing more and more churches that, especially some of these big mega churches, you can go any, choose whenever you want. So how in the world does the church gather if I can go Friday night one week, Saturday night the next, Sunday? I don't even have a community at that point. So. Yes, you've, you've hit on the major problem there. That, that, I mean, it, I don't want to say it's not a church, it's a, but it's a church badly out of order because they never, they never gather as a whole assembly. Cause there's, I mean, I, we've gone to just a couple, uh, services, a couple of them, you go in in the dark. Uh, it's like sit, going to a, the movie theater, you do your time and you're out the door and, and you never have to talk to anybody. You never have to, you know what I mean? And you don't see the pastor even. So yeah. to me, it seems like we're drift. Some of these churches are drifting to, it's just a checkoff box for the week. And, because I heard one mega church pastor, he actually was enforcing a Sunday Sabbath on his family just to rein in all the, you know, that stuff, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, just, I think there are, and we're going to talk about some of the organizational structures of churches, multiple services, uh, multiple campuses. Sometimes we have, uh, is, is there something lost? Uh, are these, are these viable churches? 
are these are or are these options that are open to us? And so we will talk about some of those things. But but I think you're you're starting to see some of the these issues that uh, that start to erode the functionality, the mission, and the structure that the scriptures expect of local churches. So yeah, wonder why, like the ones that have the campuses, why don't they just do church plans instead of having four different campuses and you know, implement church plants. And yeah, I mean, there's a, it seems a, like that would make more sense. Yeah. There's a sardonic part of me that says, I know why, because somebody doesn't want to give up power, but they I don't, don't want to give up the power. The reason, yeah. Right. I don't know that that's the totality of the reason. Uh, so you've hit pet peeves here. <laughs> that, I said, you, you hit, you hit my, one of my pet peeves. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Snowberger. What yeah. would you say about, I have a friend, she has some Jewish heritage and she um, observes Shabbat. And I don't, and Sunday she's doing whatever church she can online, but she's convinced that that's, she's benefiting from it. She observes from Friday sundown to Saturday yeah. sundown right. in her own private time. I'm just curious your input on that. Yeah, I think we sort of talked a little bit about this last time about about some of these Jewish functions, whether the feasts or the Sabbaths or or any number of Old Testament requirements and regulations. They are not wrong of themselves for the most part. I mean, I mean, if you're engaging in certain sacrifices, we'd have a problem. But for for the most part, uh, if if these people are simply doing this in order to reflect their Jewish heritage or their ethnic culture, I don't think there's necessarily a problem with that. But almost always when I see that happening, it's far more than that. Yeah. Some sort of, some sort of superiority, uh, that's assigned to, to living this way or some sort of necessity to live this way in order to be completely obedient uh, to the scriptures. And that's where the problem comes in. So claiming a a much deeper intimacy with Christ because they do that. Yep. Yeah. That, 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 that becomes a problem at that point. Okay. Thank you. Our next topic here is going to be the elements of worship in the gathered church. So we've defined what a church is. Now we want to go to what a church does. And uh, what we want to talk about here is uh, what is often called the regulative principle. Um, that is uh, the question as to what does God require us to do when we gather together. Um, and there's two competing principles in play. Uh, some hold to the regulative principle, which says whatever God says we must do and nothing more. And then there's the normative principle, which is common in Lutheran life, which says as long as the Bible doesn't say I can't do it, then I can't. Okay, so those are two competing approaches uh, to church life. Now, I've, as I've sort of tipped my hand here, uh, that, uh, I, I want to, I want to defend here the regulative principle of worship, uh, which is reflected here, as you can see in that first paragraph there, uh, uh, down on 16, uh, reflected here in the London Baptist Confession is that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by God himself and so limited by his own revealed will 
that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so I'm going to suggest that this is the approach uh, that we ought to take. And I've used, uh, I've reflected this in two texts here above, and uh, I've I've actually not used the uh, the NIV that I normally do because it doesn't reflect as 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 precisely what I'm trying to see in these uh, these texts. In each of these, in the bold terms, there is a the. An, an, an article that appears before these elements. And it seems here that we have between these two verses here, a list of the necessary elements of worship. Okay. First uh, Timothy four thirteen. until I come be devoted to the reading of scripture, to the exhortation and to the teaching. And we'll couple that with the Acts 2.42, that they continued to meet together in the temple courts, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And uh, again, you can see I've, I've drawn attention to the fact that these have articles in front of them. And uh, probably we should think of these as elements of a very well-known liturgy. We do the same thing, right? Okay. Uh, if you're, if you're talking about the, uh, the unofficial liturgy of churches, what do we have? We have the offertory, right? We have the offering. We have the sermon. We have the scripture reading. Okay. So anytime you can put a the in front of it, it seems like we've, we've got an element of worship, uh, going on. And so the reason we use the the is because it's, it's a well-known practice that we do every week. The invitation perhaps is one that, uh, has, 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 has disappeared a little bit from, of our many liturgies here, but that's, you know, it's another one where we put a the in front of it. Okay. Or the special, you know, the special music or something of that nature. Um, so, uh, so it seems here that the scriptures define what the thes ought to be. Okay, these, these are the elements that ought to be included in every gathered assembly. The reading, that is the public reading of the scriptures. The exhortation, which is the sermon. The teaching, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that because that's actually the one that dominates the New Testament past, New Testament, uh, the scriptures. And it's one that we don't really have as one of our elements. So we're going to have to sort of sort of piece this one together um is are, are we talking about a creed a confession what is that well we'll talk about that the fellowship which uh is if i can if i can put it here is the sharing okay uh which may be a sharing of conversation but probably also includes the sharing of resources uh so i would probably include here one of the fundamental features here is the offering okay we're sharing resources the breaking of bread, which is communion, and the prayers. That is multiple focused prayers. And I think you do that at, uh, at community, but, uh, um, but, you know, sometimes, uh, you'll see a, 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 an invocation, a benediction, a prayer of assurance and con- a confession and assurance, a pastoral prayer, which is often dedicated to, you know, the, the, the pastoral needs of, 
you know, the, the physical needs of people in the life of the church and such. And so the idea of focus, multiple focused prayers uh, seems to be reflected here. And these are the elements of regular worship. Now, uh, I, I've been using this word elements, and I want to make sure we understand what I mean by it, uh, because there's another term that often shows up in these discussions that I think is, is, is an important one as well. The scriptures identify the elements of worship, but not all of the circumstances of worship. So in other words, it says that we ought to preach. We ought to, there ought to be singing. There ought to be prayers. But it doesn't say whether we should sit when we do this, whether we should stand when we do this, whether we should kneel as we do things, whether we should raise our hands as we do things. You know, the, these things are not defined in the scriptures. Uh, it doesn't say whether we should be led in prayer or we should all pray in unison. You know, a lot of prayer people, a lot of churches pray the Lord's Prayer in unison. Is that, is that what is expected here? Uh, should we sing or recite our doctrine? These circumstances are left undefined in scripture and the church has a measure of liberty in implementing them. So we're not talking about all of the circumstances of worship here, but these primary elements without which where there's a hole in our worship, okay? And I uh, qualify further that the elements of worship that we're going to discuss mostly next week uh, are matters of corporate liturgy. Uh, the, they speak to the function of the gathered church. Uh, these are the things they did when they were together, when they met together with all the people. So they don't speak to individual Christian conduct, that should be Christian, or even to the mission of the church towards those outside, which would include evangelism. You say there's no evangelism on the list. Well, and I think that's that's deliberate because evangelism isn't so much the function of the gathered church; it's the function of the scattered church. We don't we don't so much gather in order to share the gospel with unbelievers. We gather as believers for other functions. We scatter to bring that to unbelievers. Now, of course, sometimes. These people, the, the unbelievers wander in, and there should be some value here for them. Uh, but, it, it, but uh, as it, with uh, with the scriptures as our example, um, it's they see what we're doing ordinarily with each other, and they're impressed by that. They are I'm impressed, perhaps is the wrong word here. They're they are they are they are they, they, they uh, what what we're doing it speaks to them. Um, and they will say, they will conclude that God is meeting here and there will be a sort of a passive invitation then for them to join. Uh, but the idea of, of active evangelism is not something that really uh, was part of the gathered church in, in, in much of its history. That's something of a recent development. Okay. So what we're talking about here in these elements are the elements that are practiced by the assembly when they are Assemble. Okay, does that make sense? Does that follow? So that's our introduction. Let's let's just do the first one here because I think we can we can do that. That'll give us a running start into next week. The first thing on the list here in in the Timothy passage is the reading. I believe the ESV has the public reading of Scripture, which is uh, all that's not in the Greek, but that's probably correct, right? It's the public reading of Scripture. Um. This tops Paul's list because it's probably the most rudimentary function of public worship. 
to expose people to the Bible. In the history of the church, the reading has traditionally been substantial. Multiple chapters, um, which is something that the, uh, the, the church at large in, in modern life has, has lost its appetite for, right? If the scripture reading gets more than about six or eight verses, we're, we're looking at our watches to see when it's over. Uh, but in the, in the history of the church, uh, the, uh, the, the reading of the scripture typically had at least one chapter from the Old Testament, one chapter from the New, minimum. Okay. And, uh, there's been a, there's been a, 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 a we've retreated from that and I think it's a bad, bad idea. Uh, and I, I mentioned here that if you follow this practice of reading one chapter from each Testament weekly, the whole Bible can be read in about 10 years. I think that's a, that's a, that's an achievable goal, uh, that, uh, churches would do well to, to set, to expose their people to the whole counsel of God, the whole scripture in the course of 10 years. Um, now why is it that we don't have as much of an emphasis on the public reading of scriptures. Um, and there's, there's a number of reasons, but I've got a few of them here. One is a misplaced confidence that modern believers have their own Bibles and will read them privately. Because of course, in the early church, people didn't have Bibles, couldn't read. And so the only way they could get exposure to the Bible was in the public reading of the scripture on Sunday. And so it became a hugely important thing. And so sometimes we, we get this idea, okay, well, now we all have Bibles. We have personal devotions. We don't need to do this anymore. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I hate to be so, uh, so, so cynical here, but the fact is a lot of people don't read the Bibles or don't read them very often. And so I, I think as much as anything that this, this is something that we really should redouble our efforts to do is to read the scriptures publicly so that people are exposed to them. Sometimes it's the tortured reading skills of public readers uh, that cause us not to uh, want to do this, but this can be overcome as well. You know, practice. Uh, whoever, whoever is assigned to do the reading, you know, practice it, read it, read it a few times until it becomes smooth and you can read it with expression and uh, that should be the norm in the life of the church and then sometimes there's this perceived unintelligibility or irrelevance of some texts like why in fact i i, I did this in, in a church where i'm preaching right now i knew i was going to be preaching on habakkuk and so i, I was in fact yeah, I, I did that in january and so back in november i decided well let's read through habakkuk so we could prepare for when I preach the series on Habakkuk. And, and I could just, you could almost feel the consternation in the church as they were reading these chapters of woe and doom and gloom and judgment. And they're like, you could tell it's like, why are we reading this? This isn't something we should read in church. <laughs> Nobody actually said it, but I, but I, but I could, but I could just sense it because there was this idea that there's only, only certain passages that you can read in church and it has to have some sort of a devotional twist in order for us to read it in church. And I think that's, that's something that uh, it, we, that, that's, that's, that's a troubling, troubling trend. 
we ought to be able to read the whole of the scriptures and it ought to be normal for us uh, to be able to hear any scripture and derive some value from it. Okay. And so I say here, none of these reasons uh, for which the modern church sometimes fails to read the scriptures is a good reason for stopping. Okay. So the first item on the list is the public reading of scriptures. I think it's something that is, is, it should be routine and normal in the life of every church. Yeah, it's actually kind of odd for me that we have to argue for the public reading of scripture in churches. But uh, unfortunately, sometimes we have to make a, a, a defense, an apologetic for it, uh, which is probably the most rudimentary thing that ought to happen in the life of the church. So that's the, the first of six here. Uh, we've, re- we've exhausted our time for tonight, so we'll, we'll look at the other five uh, next week and then move into some other areas of study as well. Okay, we will see you then next week. Same place, same time.